Hello and welcome to episode 27 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Bob Tewksbury. Bob pitched in the majors over parts of 13 seasons and is currently a sports psychology coach with the Boston Red Sox. Bob, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Well, thanks, Ross. It's a pleasure to be joining you and um, talking a little bit about baseball and performance or whatever it is that we'll talk about. Well, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Oh, boy. Way back when? I mean, it was baseball was just something that um, I'm not sure what it was, but it was a sport that I took up early um, and, you know, played through Little League and Babe Ruth League and high school and college and was able to every year, um, you know, find myself in the upper level of the, the group of which I was competing with and just kept pursuing it. But I, I don't really remember. I um you know, we didn't, I guess it would probably be a process of elimination. We didn't have a high school football team. We didn't have a high school hockey team. And, um, you know, baseball was pretty easy to play in the backyard by yourself with a bat and a ball. And um, I had a lot of fun doing that growing up. So by the time you were a senior in high school, let's say, how many pitches were you already throwing at that point? Um, I was just throwing fastball. I, I didn't throw change-ups or curveballs until I got to college. And, and um but in high school, I, you know, I grew up in a small town in New England and, and went to a regional school. And, um, you know, it, it was, uh, I was, you know, just was able to throw the ball harder than anybody and had good control. But I also practiced a lot. You know, I remember I, I tell, you know, kids and my children and uh, those aspiring players that, you know, I, I used to go and throw against the schoolyard wall, you know, in the summertime and, and, make up games in my head or like I was pitching to people. And so I was doing something related to, to baseball. And, you know, they talk about the 10,000 hours or 10 years to become an expert. And I think that um, I put in 10,000 hours as a kid playing baseball. That's for sure. You were drafted by the Yankees in the 19th round of the 1981 draft. What was that day like for you? It was great because, you know, it was a dream come true to, to be uh, to be drafted, that was the, the goal, and and um, but I always had you know mentors and advisors, but high school guidance counselor coaches, uh, you know, telling me that you know go to school and get an education, and um, you know if baseball happens, it does. So it was you know it wasn't all baseball. I really worked hard at school and, and knew that that was an important part of of my future and. So when I was able to get drafted, it was great. And, you know, certainly being in New Hampshire in the middle of Red Sox country, the Yankees, <laughs> certainly, uh, you know, my friends used to tease me, but why the Yankees? And I said, well, I didn't have a choice. Was, <laughs> uh, that's who drafted me. And, and I wasn't going to say no. So it was really exciting day. What were your expectations of yourself and of what your career would be at that point? Boy, that's a good question. You know, to say that I knew that I was going to pitch in the big leagues would be an untruth. Um, I don't think I knew. I don't think anyone knows when they sign a contract of how far their career is going to go. I think that you're playing professional baseball. Um, you know, you're, you're kind of in the dance, and you don't really know, I think. I didn't really know until I, I got to double A that I thought, you know, okay, I might be able to. You know, these guys are really, really good, and I'm at double A, and I'm doing all right, and I might be able to go to the next level. And and then when I pitched successfully in triple A, I, I 
knew that, you know, I could get to the next level. I didn't know how long I would stay, but I knew I could get there. Bob, you dealt with injuries throughout your career. I think we as sports fans and analysts have a tendency to take for granted an athlete's injury and rehabilitation process involved with them. I'm curious what it's like to actually go through it. Tell me about the process of recovering from major arm surgery. Mm. Well, I had, um, my actually had an elbow and the shoulder. The, the elbow wasn't as significant as the shoulder. The elbow was a, uh, the ulnar nerve. It, it wasn't a Tommy John or any ligament um, issues. So that was fairly minor, but it did take some time to recover. And, and like any injury, there's a fear of, of being hurt again, or if your stuff's going to be the same as it was before you got injured. Um, but I was able to come back from that. That was in 82. And um, I did lose a little velocity, but I, I worked in my command and came back. And then in 88, I had uh, major shoulder surgery. Um, uh, and that was one that was really difficult because it was a lengthy rehab. Um, I had to learn my throwing motion or alternate my throwing motion a little bit. Um, and, you know, this was something that you don't know. You really don't know if you're going to, uh, what kind of stuff you're going to have post-surgery or how long it's going to take for that to come back. And for me, it was a year. Um, and it's it's really tough because there's a lot of lonely hours in physical therapy. There's a lot of frustration with, um, you know, two steps forward, one step back. There, there's a lot of anxiety with, you know, am I doing the right things? Am I doing too many things? Am I not, you know, doing enough? Um, it, being injured is really, really stressful. And you go through kind of a grieving process at the same stages similarly, similarly to to dying and, and, and the loss of someone or something. And, you know, um, there's anger, there's denial, there's bargaining. And, and then, you know, there's finally the acceptance of, okay, this is what happened and this is what I need to do. And, um, uh, but athletes in general are really good about working through them because they know they're highly motivated to get back to what they did, uh, no matter what the sport is. And I, I think that that I know the therapists like that. They have an eager, willing patient. The player has a lot of motivation. That's probably the, the biggest thing that gets them back um, is the, the desire and, and, and willingness to go through it to compete again. What do we know about the best ways to keep pitchers healthy? I don't think we know. You know, I, I think that we're trying to find out with, you know, the pitch counts, shoulder programs. Uh, you know, Dr. Fleissig and, and James Andrews, Dr. Andrews have done a lot of research uh, at their clinic about, you know, pitch volumes for young kids, when to throw a breaking ball, you know, the proper mechanics. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of data. There's a lot of uh, research being uh, in and around that. But even with that, they're still throwing a baseball, no matter how you, Spin it around is an unnatural motion on your arm, and uh, everyone's body is, is built differently with tissue and, and ligament strength. And uh, I, I just think that you know everyone's susceptible to being injured. Um, all the activities are, are monitored and, and trying to increase the likelihood of that injury not being a as significant or b not even happening and 
there's been a lot of gains in that, but I still don't know if there's anything that can really, really prevent it. On April 11th, 1986, you made your Major League debut for the Yankees. Tell me about that day. Yeah, that was fun because, you know, I, I had made the club out of spring training by pitching 20 consecutive scoreless innings and was announced uh, the fourth starter, I think, fourth or fifth starter, I, I can't remember. Um, and, you know, I got that was the, probably the bigger throw was, was, well, there's two. I mean, t- being told that I made the team in spring training was a big thrill, um, and I, that I was going to the big leagues. And um, and second was I was really confident because because I had had so many good outings in spring training that I really felt good going into that game. I, I was pretty relaxed. Uh, confidence was high. Um, you know, family and friends came in from New Hampshire and. Uh, uh, the late Rod Scurry was able to get out of a jam in the eighth inning. I think he struck out six guys that he faced um, uh, to secure the win. And, and um, I, I remember that Mr. Steinbrenner had bought me a, uh, and the Yankees or whomever had bought me a huge magnum of champagne. That's probably the bottle's probably three feet tall. Uh, <laughs> it's not, it's never been opened. It's still in my house. Um <laughs> I don't want to open it, but it's a it's a reminder of that first one. It was really fun. What adjustments did you feel like you had to make after being called up? Well, when I got called up, I had no idea what in the heck I needed to do. I was just going to pitch and hope for the best. Um, you know, and you go through your lumps. You you understand um, what you learn in those first seasons are how good major league players are. How you really have to continue to work hard to to have success, how long the major league season is compared to the minor league season, uh, you know, travel, um, stress, um, you know, as a young player, you're, you're always wondering if you're going to be sent down. And uh, if you have a bad game, you, you know, you, you tell your wife or girlfriend that, you know, don't use the credit card, let's eat at McDonald's. And if you have a good game, you'd, you want to go to Ruth Chris's and have a steak, you know, and, and uh, it's really that much of a swing. But over time, you know, uh, in experience, you learn that, you know, you, you need to really develop your off-speed pitches and, and you need to have confidence in throwing those in certain situations. You need to um, understand that, you know, how to manage a lineup and you need to understand you know, how to pitch without your best stuff. And uh, there's a lot of things that you learn, but um, they all happen after the first year because the first year you're kind of like, oh my God, I'm really living my dream. I can't believe this. And it's pretty surreal. Who do you learn from? Who helps you develop pitches? Who helps you adjust to big league life? Well, you have, you know, the pitching coach uh, plays a big part in that, but you learn a lot from the veteran players. I was lucky to have Ron Guidry and Joe Necro and, Dennis Rasmussen, Dave Rigetti, um, Rick Roden. You know, I had a lot of people there that were, you know, kind of take you under your wing. And that's that's one of the things that happens in baseball is that a lot of players, you know, when uh, John Lackey talks about it often, uh, Don Mattingly talked about it, you know, recently where, um, you know, the, the, the job of the veteran players to help the younger player um, and then the younger player becomes a veteran. His job is to help the next younger player. And that's a tradition and a culture that's really happened in this game. And I think that's how we all learn. We learn from our former, we learn from our teammates and those who have a little bit more experience than us. 
Tell me about the dynamic of the pitcher-catcher relationship and how the nature of it evolves over time. Well, the catchers simply put down suggestions because they don't know what the heck they're doing. And <laughs> <laughs> it's the pitchers who, you know, they're the, we're the brains of the operation. I, I remember telling Terry Steinbach, look, just put down something, and if you miss it, just go back and pick it up and throw it back to me, and we'll start all over again. So, you know, the the that relationship is huge, and the catchers have to be psychologists of their own and dealing with pitchers, you know, we can be high maintenance individuals sometimes. And so that relationship is important. Communication is vital, understanding, being on the same page, but you don't have to shake uh, your head, you know, three or four times to get a pitch. You know, if you shake the catcher, having the, the feel for that relationship knows what pitch to go to, which helps keep your rhythm and tempo on the mound, which everyone appreciates. Um, so it's a very important uh, dynamic and, and, you know, one that develops with time and, and conversations in the back of the plane or the back of the bus or in the dugout or, you know, you have to have that relationship to have that in-game ability to be on the same page. How do you handle a catcher who doesn't call a good game or doesn't make the good suggestions? How do you handle a poor defensive catcher? Um, well, a defensive catcher, you know, that's not anything that you can control. So you hope that he's working on the things that he needs to work on. You know, you, you talk about communication. You go through the lineup. If you have a problem with him, you know, what I tend to do would be to tell him, hey, look, the, the next inning, first hitter, I want to throw a curveball. And then, um, you know, and, and set it up that way. The other thing is to just go to the wipes. Um, you know, I had a couple of catchers that I was not on the same page with. And instead of waiting for them to get to the sign that I wanted, I, we just set up a series of wipes where, you know, if you, if you swipe your glove on your chest, it, that's adding, uh, and if you, if you brush your thigh, that's subtracting. And so you start at, you know, uh, one's a fastball, two's a curve, three's a slider. So if you put down a three and, and I want a fastball, then, you know, I can go down two or I can go up two. And so it sped things up a little bit. How do you change your in-game approach against a hitter the second and third time around that you face them? Uh, it depends on the situation. You know, if, if uh, the hitters will tell you if you need to adjust. So you read off the hitters. If they can't hit it, they can't hit it. And I think sometimes pitchers outguess themselves with saying, well, I threw him that last time and I can't throw him that this time. Uh, and, and there's a great cat and mouse game because sometimes, you know, number one, I remember Franklin Stubbs is a guy that comes to mind playing with the Dodgers. I kept throwing him fastballs in, not that I threw hard, but he couldn't keep the ball fair. And, and I just kept pitching him in and he, he eventually, you know, grounded out to first or, you know, hit a fly ball to right field because he, um, you know, he made the adjustment of trying to keep it there, but he didn't hit it solidly. Whereas if I had thrown him another pitch, I'd have probably done him a favor and allowed him to, to make more solid contact. But there are times where, you know, pitchers will throw a good curveball and the guy will hit it off the wall. And the next time up, the hitter goes, well, I know he's not going to throw me that curveball because I just hit the last one off the wall. And a smart pitcher goes, you know, he thinks I'm not going to throw him that pitch and I'm going to throw it to him because he's not looking for it. So there's a, 
huge cat and mouse that goes on. Um, you make adjustments on the fly depending on the inning, the count, the score, and, and what the last, what the hitter did, and how you feel, and what pitches are working. There's a lot of variables that come into play. Bob, you were a pitcher that didn't really walk anyone. That's in part what allowed you to be so effective. Tell me about the art of mastering control. Practice, practice, practice. <laughs> you know, I, I, I had the ability that through hours and hours of repetition to know my mechanics and what adjustments I needed to make on each pitch to be able to throw it in the strike zone and more specifically to throw it where I wanted to. Um, and I also learned early on that I wanted to encourage contact. I wanted the players to put the ball in play, but the, the goal was to, is to do that in a situation where, you know, they don't barrel the ball up. And so I practice, you know, throwing the fastball, not to the outer half of the plate, but throwing it on the black. And, um, and uh, and I encourage contact, and, and I think that a lot of pitchers tend to pitch away from contact. And, um, you know, I think that the average time over my career, and I know specifically over a three-year period, I averaged three pitches per hitter. Um, it's hard to walk somebody <laughs> when they're swinging within three pitches. And the reason that they're swinging is because they know I'm going to throw strikes, and it's that other cat and mouse game that happens, the more command the pitcher has, the more aggressive the hitter has to be. And oftentimes the, the pitcher can become a very aggressive presence, not by how hard he throws or by how mean he looks, but by the ability to, to attack the strike zone. Bob, you had your best season in 1992. You were an all-star that year and finished third in Cy Young voting. Tell me a bit about that season. Do you feel like you were doing anything differently that year? No, and Tom Pagnozzi would say, he caught me that season. He would say that he never saw a guy throw so many balls right down the middle that didn't get hit. But I think he was <laughs> not giving me any credit. You know, no, it was, it was just one of those, you know, the momentum of confidence. The, the I felt really comfortable in St. Louis. I loved playing for Joe Torrey. Joe Coleman was my pitching coach. We had uh, guys like Terry Pendleton at third, Ozzy Smith at second, Jose Okendo at first. Ray Langford, Bernard Gilkey, Gilkey and uh, Mark Wooden in the outfield. Uh, Pedro Guerrero was at first. He wasn't that great a fielder, but they just had to throw the ball in the air to him. Tom Pagnazzi won two gold gloves, so you know I'd be a fool if I didn't throw the ball over the plate. And um, you know we they caught the ball, and and our team was perfect for me at the time, and um, it was just a great great season that. Um, you know, they talk about being in the zone, and that was the season where I was in the zone almost the whole year. Bob, you were recently featured on Fangraphs as they went through your personal notebook that you kept on teams and players you played against during the 1992 season. Tell me what kind of information was in there and what information you found most useful to use against opposing hitters. Oh, I kept track of uh, just about everything. You know, number of hitters faced, first pitch strikes, uh, that I, how many first pitch strikes did I throw, how many first pitch outs. Did I uh, get out of that? Um, uh, you know, things that I did well, things that I, you know, need to work on, and then I would keep a record of my own scouting report and what the hitters did against me because it's important to have a general idea of hitters' tendencies and strengths. But I need to know more specifically what they do against me, um, and so I form my own scouting report and would uh, refer back to that when we played them again and, and it, 
kind of gave me a starting point for some information that was valuable uh, in future games. Bob, one of the players you, you faced a lot in the early 90s was Barry Bonds. What are your impressions on him? Don't throw him a curveball down and in. Uh, he was he was so good. Um, you know, we just uh, talking about that with some friends the other day. And, and uh, you know, he was the only guy that hit a grand slam off of me, and it was his second home run of the game. I, I gave up six runs that night in, in eight innings, and he drove in all of them. And he was a great hitter. He had power to all fields, uh, had a great eye, and um, you really, there was no one way to get him out. I think, you know, when you got Barry out, you, you, he probably got himself out. He was a tremendous hitter. Do you feel like that everything that happened to him, obviously the Balco stuff later in his career, do you think that is in a sense overshadowed how good he was before all that? I think so. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, it's unfortunate because he was truly one of the greatest hitters and, and players in the history of the game. Um, but he'll be remembered for his last few years when his his first 10 years or, or whatever it was were, were pretty special. I want to ask you about some of your former teammates and contemporaries and get your impressions on them. Give me your thoughts on Greg Maddox. Obviously, tremendous pitcher. Uh, I learned a lot from Greg Maddox. I, I used to watch him to help my scouting reports with opposition players um, and, uh, you know, just but mastered the, the art of pitching. Tremendous. Uh, great to pitch against. Uh, um, he was a good hitter, too. It was a lot of fun. When you pitch against him, you better be on your game. How about Roger Clemens? I've never seen anyone come up. Uh, he was the first guy that I saw pitch in the big leagues that I was that he was so much better than anyone else I'd seen. Threw the ball hard. Great command, uh, presence, uh, totally intimidating as a, uh, as a young player watching him. A couple of your former teammates, one with the Yankees, one with the Cardinals. How about Ricky Henderson and Ozzie Smith? You know, Ricky, Ricky was, uh, I played with him on two different occasions. Uh, you know, tremendous player, tremendous athlete, probably one of the most gifted people I've ever played with because he, he really didn't do a whole lot of lifting and, and hitting, and he, he just had so many gifts. Uh, great player, great guy to have in the top of that lineup on your team. And Ozzy, I personally told Ozzy that I got him into the Hall of Fame because of all the ground balls that I got him. Uh, <laughs> he, he, he didn't believe that either, but not a more comforting feeling in the world than to know that, you know, Ozzy Smith's playing shortstop behind you and you get a ground ball, that guy's out. Uh, tremendous player, tremendous teammate. Uh, you know, just a, a pleasure to have been part of his career in some way for a few years in St. Louis. Tell me about throwing the EFIS pitch. The EFIS pitch was essentially a curveball that um, you know had forward spin on it, and but it was about 47 miles an hour. And I used to do it messing around, and and then it became something that I started using in a game just to a to have some fun and be. be Become a little bit of an entertainer, but B also had a purpose with getting players to mess up their timing. And I didn't throw it a lot; I didn't overexpose it. But when I used it, it was really effective. Tell me about your role as a sports psychology coach with the Boston Red Sox and the kind of things that you may have needed as a player for someone like you to have told you about. Well, I wish I'd had this position, you know, when I played. Essentially, you know, uh, my role is to is to help players play better and help them sort through anything that may be preventing them from, from playing 
their best, whether it's off the field uh, or on the field. And, you know, it's, it's so baseball is a long season. There's, you know, there's just based on the length of the season, there's going to be, you know, peaks and pitfalls and, and, and then families that are married have kids that go back to school with separation from family and loved ones. And, um, you know, it, it can be a very difficult sport that goes on for so long. And I know that I would have loved to have talked to someone as, as a similar resource about some bad games that I had or lack of confidence or fear of being sent down or, you know, being away from the family and, and feeling badly that you can't be there to help, you know, your wife take care of the kids. Uh, you know, if you're fortunate enough to play through your career where you can have kids and they start to stay in school. So there are a number of issues that, that come up. Um, it's been a great second career and it's uh, been very rewarding. Bob, I want to ask you about the end of your playing career. When you retired, you'd been playing baseball your entire life. You had spent well over 10,000 hours at that point playing baseball. How do you come to grips with no longer being physically able to play professionally? Well, the transition away from sport, uh, you know, the research talks about there's four things that happen. One, that, you know, you, you don't get picked anymore. You get released. Two, uh, you get injured to the point where you just can't play. Three, it's age-related. That's more related to to amateur athletics you know a lot of the baseball players especially now will will play as long as they can and it's usually physical before an age threshold that that takes them away from the game and the the last the last choice is free choice um you know i could have physically pitched i think a couple of more years albeit you know i know that i would have uh, probably been on the disabled list a couple of times and and uh, there were a lot of things that came into my decision, but mine was a decision of free choice. And none of those, the research says that that's the best one, um, but none of them are easy. Uh, transition away from sport is very difficult. Um, players are lost, their identities lost, um, their routine of uh, camaraderie around the boys um, changes. Uh, it, it, it's hard to replace that. It's a very difficult process, and a lot of players struggle with it. You've been listening to Bob Tewksbury. Bob pitched in the majors over parts of 13 seasons and is currently a sports psychology coach with the Boston Red Sox. Bob, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Okay, Ross. Thank you.